tonight on Arena. Saltburn, So This Is Christmas and May-December are the movies up for review and Paula Meehan on her new poetry collection The Solace of Artemis. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. And tonight in our film reviews, Brideshead reimagined, kind of, being lonely at Christmas and marriage age grap melodrama. Well, he's come a long way from cat murdering in Love Hate. As Oscar nominee Barry Kilgan's fascinating career goes from strength to strength, he takes the lead in Woman of the Moment, Emerald Fennell's film Saltburn, caustic and surprising tale of class cunning and obsession from the director of his and hers so this is Christmas is a poignant exploration of isolation at what can often be the least wonderful time of the year for people spending it alone and in May December Todd Haynes has the cast of his dreams with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore in this tale of an unconventional marriage Ruth Barton and Paul Whittington have been watching and they are with me in studio this evening we'll start with Saltburn written and directed by Emerald Fennell of course huge success with Promising Young Woman a while back. This is a very different kettle of fish. British class system is really what is under the, uh, what she has set in her square, crosshairs here. Starry cast led by Barry Keoghan features Alison Oliver in this as well. Ruth, start with the Barry Keoghan character, Oliver Quick, and how he even gets near this echelon of British society. Well, uh, Fennell's gone back to her origins because she is an Oxford graduate and was at, in Oxford during the period that this is set, which is sort of 2003 to 2006, because Barry Kilgan's character is looking back and mm. telling the story. And um, so he's um, a Merseyside scholarship kid. Uh, he's got his place at Oxford and finds himself immediately fish out of water because the um, you know, the people that he's in class with, that he's that are in the you know the pub with and whatever else, mm. these sort of languid upper class English types, um, who immediately sent him out for the sort of um, interloper that he shouldn't be. Um, and yeah, he, he deserves to be yeah, there. He's, yeah, he's. I mean, I mean, one of the things about the film is actually it never tells us or it illustrates in any way why he's clever. Mm. But that's that's you know, it's a given. Uh, it's, it's, we just take that for granted. Um, I mean, he makes one friend. Um, uh, this kind of fellow pariah guy called Harry, who spots you know across a crowded room the other loner. And, and sort of hones in, so we'll be two loners together and feed some crunchy bars just to get him <laughs> on side. But he um, is, yeah. is quickly swept aside because he does manage to get himself in with the um, aristocratic yeah, yeah, brideshead type yeah, crowd. Yeah, brideshead type crowd. And I think you in particular, Paul, um, say that this owes a lot to Brideshead Revisited, in fact. Yeah, well, in fairness to Emerald Fennel, she actually... Has um, said they, as much, has she? Yeah, she also makes clear in the film that she's borrowing his plot because she has somebody name uh, drop uh, even more early on to make it clear that she knows the, mm. about the similarity and intends to use it for very different reasons. And this is, um, it's a much less sophisticated um, story in a way because it's a, it's a straight out kind of class satire with nobody whatsoever to liken it, which kind of uh, um, has an effect on its moral seriousness, if you like. But it's great fun for the first hour mm. or so. So the person he meets is in it's this guy called Felix, played by uh, Jacob Elordi, who's who will be Elvis soon, uh, and is very good as well in Priscilla. Um, 
And he's this very charismatic um, uh, type of person that everybody loves, especially the women. And he's at the centre of these champagne swilling tofts who seem to dominate. The Catton Catton family. The Catton family. And he, um, uh, through a a minor incident, becomes um, uh, friendly with Oliver and... Oliver starts to tell him about his dysfunctional childhood and they, they after a fashion, they become close. He has his uses because he's cleverer than Felix is. And Felix decides to invite him to the family estate right. in the summer Saltburn. Well, let's have a listen to the moment when Oliver, the um, the, the Barry Kilgan character, meets the Catton family in Saltburn. They have been speaking about him, you'll hear before he makes his entrance. Mm-hmm. Rosamund Pike, who plays Elspeth Catton, who's the kind of matriarch of the, of the posh family, and her pal, Kerry Mulligan, who plays a character called Pamela. You'll also hear Jacob Elordi in the midst of this clip as well. And both his parents were dealing... God, and his mother's a drunk. I mean, babies can be really affected, traumatised. Oh, they come out drunk. Is that right? That he had to put his fingers down his mother's throat oh, to yeah. make her sick? Oh, Farley, that's private stuff. Well, you told us. In confidence. His mother's sick. His mother was sick. His mother was sick. I think that's actually rather right, normal yeah, when you're poor. I think when you're poor, that sort of thing does happen a little bit more. Let's <laughs> give you a good one time. Good luck. He doesn't smile much. Farley seems to think he's ghastly. Why are you so Dark, poor, not attractive, and his parents are drug addicts. I can't uh-uh. actually understand. And here he is now. We were just talking about Don't you. Don't be silly. Farley, you just make up the most oh. awful things. Of course we weren't. Hello, Oliver, darling. Oh, what beautiful eyes. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, I told you it wasn't a minger. Oh, but darling, you're kind about everyone. You can't be trusted. Lordy, there you <laughs> <laughs> Rosamund Pike as Elspeth Cat and her pal Kerry, her pal Pamela, played by Kerry Mulligan, and we also heard the voice of Jacob Lordy in the midst there. That's qu- that's quite a dinner table to be heading towards, isn't it, Ruth? Oh, uh, you know, this th- these are one of the really good c- scenes. This is one of the really good scenes because mm. they're just having fun, um, playing, you know, satirically playing these characters. And Rosamund Pike, this is. This is her. This is her film. She's wonderful. She is smashing yeah. in it, and she puts on the, you know all that kind of languid upper class um, insincerity. Uh, she loves everybody until she hates them. She is a complete mm. and utter snob, and she's you know she's well matched by her husband, <clears throat> Sir James, who's played by Richard E. Grant. So he's well suited to the role. And the and, and these are meaty, not meaty, but these are these are good parts for actors because. You can really act up that yeah. kind of stereotype. And unfortunately, what you're not getting is anything below the stereotype. So so it's all about that kind of surface performance and the sort of entertainment of watching these characters. And what, what he's um, he's in, in that sequence, he's listening outside the door. Oliver is. Barry yeah, the Barry Kilgan character. character, yeah. And this is a repeated motif that he's listening outside doors yeah. and he's, he's sno- sort of snooping, watching. And, and plotting. Yeah, you would presume that our sympathies are going to lie with the, the Barry Kogan character, but Ruth mentioning there, but he's, he's outside listening and plotting. So is he well, is unlikable yeah, in a different way. Yeah, uh, he, he is. But even initially before, and no spoilers from us, but even initially, he just is, there's something kind of creepy and watchful about mm, him. And mm. uh, initially they treat him like a kind of, you know, well-behaved cocker spaniel or something like that because he seems kind of cute and biddable. And only <laughs> gradually do they realise that he might be something more than that. But uh, Ruth is absolutely right. The the, the, the characterizations are the problem. Um, it's very entertaining for an hour and, and, and uh, Emerald Fennell is, is so good at, at that kind of witty satire. But when it comes time to go deeper, 
the film can't. Right, let's have a let's have a listen to a second clip uh, which features Barry Cogan and Pamela, the the Carrie Mulligan, who seems to be the house guest that never goes home. Unfortunately, she, <laughs> she goes home pretty soon because she's brilliant in it. She's oh, really funny. Oh, yeah, so yeah, get ten yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, she she's gone too quickly yeah, for you. She well, is. Yeah. Here she is anyway, chatting to the Oliver character Barry Cogan over dinner, black tie dinner. By the way, <laughs> don't be going in there in your ordinary in your jeans. Uh, Rosamund Pike will be heard here again, and Archie Medekwe. We met in rehab at home, which is so lovely at first, and then all of his business partners started sort of falling out of windows, you know. Right. Lucky escape. Mm. I suppose so. But he spoke Russian all the time, and it just sounded so romantic, and I don't know the Russian word for horse, so I sort of thought it sounded like lovely poetry. Ah. Daddy always said I'd end up at the bottom of the Thames. So far, so good. I don't know what I'd do without Elsbeth. She really saved me. Don't bang on about it, Pamela, darling. You know, we're delighted to have you for however long it is you mean to stay. Forever? Oh, no, I, I think I might have um, found somewhere. Oh, well done, darling. Mm, yeah, my cousin. My cousin has a flat. Oh, that'll suit you very well. A nice little flat. It's more of a more of a bed sit. Really. I love living in a bed sit in my 20s. It's so freeing to live all in one room. And much less cleaning to do. Mm. Oh, but mm. it'll be terrible when you're gone. How will I cope? Well, I... I, I could actually stay for a little no. bit longer. Oh, no, darling, no. You must be desperate to be rid of us and find your own place. I quite understand. <laughs> oh, God bless It's funny when it's like that. That's what it's good at. And God she's really good poor, at that eh? sound and the way... The, 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 just, the way let, let me just remind people that yeah. that was... Uh, Rosamund Pike was God blessing the poor... Or was it Carrie Mulligan? Uh, uh, Rosamund Pike. Rosamund was doing it. I thought, OK, and Carrie Mulligan as her pal Pamela and uh, Barry Kogan. Again, watching... An yes, awful lot of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But that kind of attitude towards poverty uh, and and the poor and yeah. how how wonderful it would be to be in one room so much less cleaning. It's very well. They're trying to get rid of of of, the, of Pamela. Yeah. To be fairness, but it's it's it, it, it's it's very funny. It's kind of glib, and uh, Emerald Fennel is very good at getting that sound. Um, uh, but it it just that that's it. Now that might be part of her point. And mm. it might also be part of her point that Barry Gogan's Gogan's character remains a kind of ellipsis almost. You don't you know, even when what happens happens, you don't never really understand them. And she might have intended that, but the characters just needed more. Yeah. I think. How does Barry Gogan fare in the midst of all of this? I know we can't probably go too far into where his character goes mm. because we give too much away. Yeah, I mean, he has this kind of blank look throughout throughout the film, and, and, and you know, as Paul's saying, that could well be a prompt from the director mm. because how is he supposed to react to these people and also I mean the film does after about sort of you know three quarters of not an awful lot happening but the, these witty exchanges suddenly go into plot overdrive and it's just one thing after another after another and there's a actually very unsurprising um, plot development towards the end about his character and then there's a series of you know, catastrophic events um, so in order for those to happen and to be consistent with his character and to be surprises, we can't anticipate yeah. what he's doing too much. So so there is this sort of blank look. But on the other hand, you could just say he's he's an actor totally baffled by everything that is going around him and asking himself, if this is his big breakthrough film, how did he end up in it? Uh, yeah, so it, it, that sounds as if you're not sure. Which do you think it is? I you Well, he's probably too good to actually step aside from the film hmm. and do his own thing. So he was probably directed to look blank. Right. Um, I think he's done himself yeah. no harm with this film because no, actually no. he he is, he, he's a very charismatic actor, even while saying nothing. And his job is to make you wonder about to him. Watch. To watch. To be yeah. a mystery for three quarters of it. And, and when 
the time comes for him. It, the physical mm. demands are made of him. He is fearless. Yeah, so and physical I, I think it showcases. Yeah, there, there's yeah. a fair amount of um, bodily. Uh, a lot of bodily fluids. Bodily fluids. fluids. There are fluids. Fluids, fluids flow. flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah fluids <laughs> of, um, of all kinds of taboo nature. Yes. yes, a lot of a lot of nudity. Strange uh, sniffings uh, also. Yeah. Oh, oh, so how does yes. that fit into the to the world that Fennell is creating here? Uh, no idea whatsoever. I th- I, I think that it, it, it there's a, there's a kind of um, sort of animalistic um, aspect to Barry Kogan's character. Uh, he 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 is uh, er, earthy to to a fault, yeah. and I'm not really sure what she's trying to say with that. Yeah, because I mean, up until that particular section, yeah. I thought this is kind of Downton, Downton with a little bit Absolutely. of nastiness yeah. poured yeah, in. Yeah, rich people behaving for? badly. Yeah. You know, which is kind then? of like we're used to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, who's the, who's that for? Is this for an American audience? But that that satire, I don't think necessarily would sit in that particular market, would it? No, well, they have. I mean, they they did. Um, adopt Danton with great with great enthusiasm mm. Um, mm. And, and the crown and and, and those kind of uh, British upper class um, melodramatic entertainment. So I think, but this it, isn't that though. But this no. isn't that, and and it is that problem actually with Barry Kilgan's character because he belongs almost like into a Peter Greenaway film. You know, mm. yeah. I think sort of something like Belly of an Architect. Those films where where it really. You know, it takes the upper classes and it really turns All everything right. upside down. But well, it, it doesn't do that. Like, yeah. So what I'm kind of picking up from both of you is that there's a lot in it, but it's it's difficult to unpack and a, a certain level of uncertainty from both of you, if, if that's fair yeah, to say. Yeah. What was the intention of this film? Yeah. You know, if you had to, sort of, if when she pitched it, what did she say? I'm not quite You're sure. Not quite you know, sure. Other so than, o- oh, it's bright overall, overall stars then, Ruth. Um, well, I, you know, I actually really wasn't that enthusiastic. I gave it two and a half, and then I gave it an extra half. For Barry Kilgan said that added up to three. Right. Okay. What are you saying, Paul? Uh, well, I, I, I would give it sort of a solid three, to be honest, because it has a glittering surface, and the first hour of it, as I said, is is, mm. is really well written and very, very funny. And um, uh, yeah, as a satire, it stands up for quite a long time. So what did you say? Four, three, 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 yeah, a pretty solid. And, three and Rosamund Pike is. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah. that seems to be. She seems to be the woman of the film. Let us move on then to so this is Christmas documentary film from Ken Wardrop that follows uh, five people in the Midlands as they uh, prepare for the Christmas season. I mean, this is Ken Wardrop of his and hers and the, the wonderful. I mean, I say the name of that film and I start to smile when I when I think about the way he he told the story of you know. A, a, people growing up essentially um, but here we have five people far from full of the joys of the season despite the title of the piece So This Is Christmas Ruth Yeah it is, it is I mean it's, 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 it's made you wouldn't even need to know that Ken Wardrop made it to recognise his style mm. because he's a very he's, he's obviously sets up a rapport with the people that he's making documentaries about very very well and, and he so stays out of the way he stays out you don't see him in frame but what you get is a sequence of people in whichever of the films we're talking about, talking to camera about themselves. And it starts right back with his student film, Undressing My Mother, when his mother yeah. talks to camera undressing. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and then he, he, they're also really tightly edited um, so that the stories develop, particularly in this one, they develop uh, between interviews. So you get you know somebody talking to camera and then the next person comes along and then you go back to that first person and they tell you a little bit more about themselves. So you're building out mm. kind of picture. So they're really, really tightly made films. I mean, actually, you know, his and hers came out and it was charming. Um, but the one I really like is actually making the grade, which is the, the one about people taking uh, their, their piano grade lessons. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that was a charming <laughs> and, uh, that was a, that, and, you know, the difference between the two for me was that 
in his and hers, we were stuck in the Midlands, which is his home territory. Um, but there was, I mean, although it was charming, it was it was very much focused on one kind of small group of people, which is um, uh, families in the Midlands, heterosexual relationships, and women in the home. Yeah. And 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 I would have had that critique about it. It, it didn't open up to really. A, a, a right. representative group of Irish yeah. society, whereas well, Making the Grade did. All right, and here we have um, five characters, Shane, Annette, Loretta, Jason and Mary. Let's, let's let's hear from one of the characters first and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, how they represent or not, um, I, I suppose, a broader Irish society. This is Shane, um, who has recently been bereaved or had, had bereavement in and around Christmas time. And that's part of what makes him sound so lonely, I have to say. And just a little bit of language towards the end of this clip. I used to sleep in the bed. Except the couch was more nicer. La handier. Get up and you're out quicker than getting out of a bed. I wouldn't feel the cold when I'm in here. I'd be f- fucking too warm half the time. So I nearly have to open the windows to 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 out the heat. I'm the baby of the house. Home alone. When the mother died before Christmas, and then the father died then, I hated Christmas. After that. And that's Shane, one of the characters in Ken Wardrobe's So This Is Christmas. Uh, and, you know, if you if you thought So This Is Christmas, you're going to be getting mm. kind of soft sentimentality, which is what I thought from the from the no. uh, from the documentary title. No, this is kind of fairly bleak stuff. Yeah, it, 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 it is. And it, it, it's distinct from. Uh, anything else that he's done in that mm. regard because it's no, nothing sugar-coated about it. Again, you have this extraordinary capacity he has to, to get people to open up yeah. and speak to him. They obviously yeah. trust him implicitly and uh, people sit around and tell their stories. It is the other side of Christmas. It's um, people forgets. Uh, one of the other characters at one point says Christmas is for children and then she talks about how she didn't get married and why she didn't have children and uh Christmas can be an incredibly bleak and lonely time for people and we all forget it, but it's yeah. true. And I think th- 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 this film, it really gets into some really interesting corners in in, in terms of what people yeah. go through and how they cope. And what about um, the characters that we meet? We we have Shane there and we get a sense of who he Shane. is just from that, that short clip. What about the others, Annette, Loretta, Jason and Mary, Ruth? Yeah, so so we have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, a single mother with three small children who's a recovering alcoholic. So um, she is struggling financially, apart mm. from her difficulties of being yeah, a single mother. Yeah. And she details in painstaking uh, you know, detail how every euro is spent and how she doesn't have enough money for the, for the kids to do this and, and, and to do mm. that. And and suppose... She got an unexpected bill and then that threw all her, her planning out. Yeah. And so Christmas is a nightmare because of the financial pressure on parents. And and this thing about you know what Santi bringing you and I remember that from my own children like mm. going mad. Please, would you stop asking them what Santi's bringing them? And we could afford to buy the stuff, but mm. now what about the parent who can't? Yeah. And so that I think that that that's really a clever se- segment. And then there's a, a father with two small boys and his wife has died, and he's deep. He deeply, deeply mourns. So the two little he's boys incredibly honest, isn't he? Really speaks about his feelings. Is that Jason? Is that the character of Jason? Yes. 
Oh, yeah. did Jason. I'm not sure because he didn't yeah. give the names. Right, he doesn't tell them. Yeah, yeah. so but yeah. they're very distinctive characters. Yeah. Like you wouldn't confuse him. And he's got the two small boys. Two boys are quite quiet, and you can see that you know they're slightly uncomfortable. But and he's really open, oh, as yeah. he said, as Paul said about yeah. his feelings. <coughs> yeah. And then there is another young, uh, another woman who um, is bulimic, and so for her, the idea of eating a Christmas dinner is just repellent. Yeah. And 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 she's single and again she she doesn't have children. And then there is a much older woman um who is <coughs> is very lonely, doesn't have family and um so she's you know is she going to be on her own um at Christmas yeah. and she there's also kind of thread it through a lot of them are quite religious there's sort of religious iconography uh, and there's this kind of sense that oh you know Catholicism has let them down because it's given them this this festival. Yeah. And then it's taken away the kind of um, rituals that people go through to enjoy it, and, and I think you know what 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 I really took from this, and it doesn't give you a message. It's not hammering home a message, but there is that kind of neoliberal idea that people should sort out their own lives. Everybody's got respons- a responsibility for their own lives, and to make it to make life yeah. work for you. And what's really clear about these people is they're not unhappy or left behind or left out through any fault of their own. But because circumstances, of circumstances. Yeah. it's an argument yeah. in favour of the, the old fashioned idea of community, isn't it? It and, uh, is. Yeah, and also yeah, it's absolutely. really you know, just about the same time we have, you know, Suella Bradman saying that living on the streets is a lifestyle choice. And it's yeah. but it's the antidote yeah. to that argument. And, and it's saying you have to talk to people, you have to understand those and stories. And Ken Wardrobe, too, is always really good at telling details, always in, in interviews. If he can, there's a little prop somewhere or something that tells yeah, something about the person in the, 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 the man whose voice we heard at the start there. He, he, clearly, like his his house has seen better days, and you know he might not be good at the day to day stuff as a lot of uh, older men might not be. And you just get this. He always wardrobe gives us this sense of what's behind the character's words and so on, the person's words, not character. Yeah. And uh, as I say, his his ability to to ah. to get people to speak freely is incredible and brave to be taking it out on, in the teeth of Christmas. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. In, in I think yeah. The original yeah. title of this film was "I Hate Christmas." Yeah. <laughs> so this is Christmas might be a more marketable <laughs> title. Okay. I would guess. <laughs> um, uh, stars from you on this one, Paul. Five stars. From Five. Me. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's flawless I, in I, your I, mind. I can find no fault in it. I think it's a very valuable documentary. And uh, Ruth. Uh, no, I, I mean I did. I did. I I just have to go back to that critique that I made of the mm. earlier films, which is um, surely there were people who were not white <laughs> living mm. in that area who had very different cultural uh, experiences of being left out from Christmas. And I think his insistence on this very narrow uh, group of people does make does cut out a lot of different right. voices. So um, I gave it three and a half. That's probably a bit and there's probably a four. But I was I just I felt there was something lacking. And, right. And, Okay, I just missed that. You missed that, missed uh, that. diversity aspect yeah, that you were that you were looking for. Right, let us move on to our final film, May December. Julianne Moore plays Gracie, a housewife who uh, who more than twenty years ago was sent to prison for an affair with Joe, a young boy of thirteen. Gracie and now the grown up Joe are married and living an ordinary life in Savannah, Georgia until an ambitious actress played by Natalie Portman arrives in town. Um, bring us into the life of Gracie and Joe in Savannah in the latter parts of, of, of well, you know, after the events of 20 years ago. Well, it, it's this is based on true story. Of, yeah. Uh, Mary Kay Letourneau, who, who was a teacher in, in her 30s and she had a relationship with a 12-year-old boy and was sent to jail and the relationship survived. They had three children and so all that's true. She's now uh, dead. Um, so Todd Haynes somebody else would turn this into some sort of lurid kind of you know mm, TV movie mm. of the week but Todd Haynes is a much more interesting filmmaker than that and he he has 
by bringing in the actor, he has he has he has created this new level of ick on top of everything else, and it really really works well. This is the um, this is the Natalie Portman character. Natalie Portman's character, yes. Yeah. So, so so Gracie, they, they they all that happened to them, and uh, Gracie, they they sort of moved on from it, as it were, or tried to, and. Um, she and her husband, Joe, have three children. She has an ex-husband, two older children, very messy situations. And this actress breezes in. Uh, and like all um, actors, uh, Sean, she's a brass neck. So so, so she's prepared to to kind of uh, appear yeah, in every I aspect of the... I think the word you were searching for was like some actors. Courage. Or, or courage. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. some actors, she's um, a brass neck. So she, she turns up at family meals. She even turns up in Gracie's bathroom. She's trying to find mm. a way of impersonating, or no, yeah. of playing her in a film. She wants to get her slight lisp. She wants to... Uh, investigate every area of her life and All that's right. the drama. Okay, well here's a clip where Gracie the Julianne Moore character asks Elizabeth Natalie Portman, the woman who has the brass neck to, <laughs> to come to her uh, to ask the player. She, she wants to know, why do you want to play me? Why do you want to play me? Uh, when they sent me the script I just thought now here is a woman with a lot more to her than I remember from the tabloids and our uh, cultural memory. Um, I don't really think about all that. You don't ever dwell on the past? I, I, <laughs> I have my plate pretty full. Mm. I mean, I know that for me personally, the past weighs on me, you know, decisions I've made or relationships so you just sit there and you you think about your history and your and your behavior sometimes that's uh, Natalie Portman as Elizabeth the actress who wants to play Gracie the character played yeah. by Julianne Moore in the film uh, May December um, the 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 extraordinary thing is here, but Paul mentioning beforehand, Ruth, about Todd Haynes doesn't turn this into the TV movie that it could be. What a cast he has to help him not do that. Yeah, I mean, he he does work regularly with Julianne Moore. This is mm. the, this is the third time they're working together. They made um, Safe together and they made Far From Heaven together. Mm. And so he, he, he and she are, are working together very, very well. She really gets what he's trying to do. And she's... She's such an interesting. She's got such an interesting face, Julianne Moore. She almost, she's almost kind of bleached mm. out. She has that you know very pale skin, and and there's something. You know, she is living in in an unreal world because she does not, will not recognize the fact that she's living in this still notorious household. And even though they're getting on, they're having barbecues, they're having beach parties. She's almost dismissive when a bag of poo is thrown over the gate by somebody, and and she just keeps on going. And she's she's got this. You know, she's got this business baking baking cakes, and and we learn from another character that in fact they're only bought by people who want to kind of help her out. But she she's just going on yeah, kind of blithely, yeah. and then the really kind of the kind of killing thing is that although she has stayed in this relationship with Joe, you know, for years, he's thirty six now, but she treats him like a child still, and right. she she pushes him around. She refers to um his butterfly collection as his bugs, and and so she she's still treating him like the child. Right. 
he was when, when, when they first when, met. When their relationship started. And the term May, December, is it explained within the movie itself, Paul? Well, it's to do with, um, you know, uh, May, December. It's a joke about these old May, December romance they used to make about men who, 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 who um, you know, got involved with much younger women. It's, uh, one it's, of them born in May. Yeah. Many, uh, many years ago. And yeah, the other one born yeah, in December. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think so. And uh, yeah, it's, um, as Ruth says, uh, Gracie, they, they've kind of built this wall around themselves and and they inhabit a fantasy land. But actually, she seems very juvenile as well, Gracie. She doesn't think right. like a grown-up. And she, mm. she constantly tries to kind of um, uh, snake her way past the uncomfortable truth that the relationship was based on a, a crime. So are we, are we in a world of suspense or thriller or are we in a world of psychological drama, uh, Ruth, as you give me your stars? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, psychological drama, definitely. And, and you know, this is our second film set in high society, but it's so different because it mm. really gets under the skin of, of the people that, that it's depicting. Yeah. So I liked it very much, Four Stars. Four Stars. What are you saying, Paul? Yeah, I'm saying four stars. I love the way you use music in it. There was a sort of whiff of kind of, you know, um, 80s mystery drama and, and uh, you know, that kind of thing off it. And it, it, it's it's sort of playful in a kind of, he's he's sort of, he's pushing you in directions you don't want to go. And also I think Natalie Portman yeah. is, is, is really, really good in it. Natalie really Portman. Creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So four, four. Four and four. Four and four. four and four was what we had there for May, December. And Ruth Barton and Paul, uh, and Paul, and Paul, Paul Whittington. I'm going to call you Livingstone for some reason or whatever. <laughs> well, I don't mind that. Yeah, that Paul Livingstone, yeah. who's also yeah. known as Paul Whittington. <laughs> and Paul Whittington speaking to us about mid-December. So this is Christmas and Saltburn. The Solace of Artemis is a new portrait collection from Paul O'Meehan. The poems, which are grounding, provoking and uplifting in equal parts, are divided into three sequences. The first is the ceremonials, most recent work, which Paula describes as a place of consolation and wildness. The second is Museum, a sequence commissioned by the Dublin Tenement Museum Project in 2019. And the third is For the Hungry Ghosts, her poem cycle inspired by the Hades episode in Joyce's Ulysses. Delighted to have Paula Meehan with me in studio this evening. I get into those three separate parts of the collection, if you want, in in, in a moment, Paula. But the whole set of poems is prefaced by a piece called Sister Trauma. That's mm-hmm. an evocative title. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Sister and her trauma. Yeah. Well, I I saw I was kind of personifying trauma like a sister who would sit down with me. Um, I don't think like I'll be 70 in a couple of years and you don't get to that age without Mm. either directly experiencing um, difficulty or having it in your immediate family or you're coming from a community that has has historical, uh, in my case, imperial trauma, the the north inner city, you know, the area. has intergenerational trauma, as they say, as they call it. So you don't get to be this age uh, and live the life I've lived, like many people, without knowing the territory of mm. trauma. And sitting down with Sister Trauma, as you do at the collection, of, at the beginning of this this collection, does that give you solace? Does it give you understanding? What is What comes from that interaction with Sister Trauma? Yeah, well, that the... I think most artists in any of the disciplines feel this, that that the the what what you what is your vision, your way of looking mm, at the mm. world um, can be a curse in a way. 
but it is also what drives the energy that drives the work. So these things that I've experienced, I mean, I think I certainly try and integrate them through poetry, uh, as many people do, as, you know, as communities do through um, art, through the arts. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, it, it is a way of... It, it, I'm not sure if dealing with them is quite the right word. No, and it's not therapy. It's mm. more akin to song. I, I, I think the lyric poetry is is a kind of a singing without accompaniment. Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't have a name per se other than the singing, the singing of whatever the particular emotion yeah. is. Now, Artemis, yeah. this it, it's obviously the, the title of the collection is The, the Solace of Artemis. Um, she's quite the character in mythology, the uh, hunter and all sorts of aspects to her. What interests you in her? Um, well, the interest goes way back and in her name is contained the roots of the words in Greek and um, for the bear and sanctuary, Arctus, like we were how we name the Arctic, the place where the bears are. So she was the great even before the classical writers dressed her up as this, you know, young one in flowing robes, etc. <laughs> beautiful and all that. Um, she was more like a bear totem, you know, a spirit of that ferocious energy, the bear mother. And um, she's associated with the bear all the way through going back to the Neolithic. So she's this ferocious um, energy. And the, uh, the, the solace of Artemis itself, the poem, came as a response to research that was published in 2011. Um, research from Trinity College, Penn State University and Oxford University that the geneticists sampled the DNA from bare bones, ancient bare bones from 27 different sites mm. around Ireland. And they discovered, right, this is science, not myth, <laughs> that one Irish brown bear now, in the time before there was even Ireland, yes, yes. retreated north with the the, the uh, melting of the ice, the end of the ice age. Uh, one brown bear was retreated north and her, her mark is in the DNA of every polar bear alive today. So there's a mother bear, a brown bear of the forests and mountains that made mm. it north and mated with whatever was there before the polar bear. So she's inscribed yeah. in the mitochondrial DNA. So it's a kind of a, to me, that's like reading a poem, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary basically to say that every polar bear has Irish ancestry. We can claim, exactly. we're claiming well, them we as need, well. <laughs> yeah, we need things to feel good about ourselves. Certainly, certainly yeah. do. Now, in the normal course of events, I would say, will you read that poem for me? But we have a different voice reading it. I don't think people need to be introduced to this voice. We'll play it first. We'll talk about why and who afterwards. The Solace of Artemis by Paula Meehan I read that every polar bear alive has mitochondrial DNA from a common mother. An Irish brown bear who once roved out across the last ice age and I am comforted. It has been a long hot morning with the children of the machine their talk of memory, of buying it, of buying it cheap. But I, memory keeper by trade, scan time coded in the golden hive mind of eternity. I burn my books, I burn my whole archive, 
a blaze that sears synapses flaring cell to cell where memory sleeps in the wax hexagonals of my doomed and melting comb. I see him loping toward me, across the vast ice field to where I wait in the cave mouth, dreaming my cubs about the den, my honeyed ones, smelling of snow and sweet oblivion. And that is the opening poem, The Solace of Artemis, from the collection of the same name by Paula Meehan. And the reader was, of course, Gabriel Byrne. Um, how did it come about that Gabriel read that poem for you and how tickled were you by the fact that it was he that was reading it, Paula? Oh, yeah. Well, I was delighted. Sure, it's an extraordinary voice. Um, it was a project of Carol Ann Duffy, who was mm. at the time the um, English Poet Laureate. And of course, Carol Ann, her mother was from Carlo and her father uh, his parents were Irish. So like we've always kind of considered her an Irish poet, you know, uh, and it was a project she she was uh, mm. uh, curating, as they say. Uh, so she asked various poets to give poems about climate change. Yeah. And this one um, fitted the bill, you know, in the sense that these things, the retreat of the ice was a cataclysmic yeah. occasion. I mean, that sculpted Ireland, that retreat of the ice has given us the, the, the land we know. Um, so so this seemed appropriate. And this was a surprise that Gabriel Byrne was going was to read going it. To reading, you know, yeah, but I was so delighted. Yeah, yeah, wonderful yeah. to hear him there. You're talking about, um, but I, the memory, a memory keeper by trade. Now it's for Katrina Crow, and who's one yeah. of the, the great archivists of this country and yeah. and of this time. But I guess the poet is the memory keeper as well as as somebody like Katrina. Yeah, and I didn't, you know, it's dedicated to Katrina Crow who put the senses up on, yeah. online and allowed us re literally remember our own communities, um, those of us uh, who had grandparents alive at the time. So I didn't really mean that I'd burn my books or my whole archive. Yeah. I actually can hardly get into my house with <laughs> books and papers. But the sense that uh, from listening to the children, you know, their uh, utterance that the house is burning, you know, what are these amazing gestures of civilization, like protecting mementos of the past in museums and archives? What does that mean? In a time mm. when, you know, every time you turn on the radio, people are slaughtering each other and bombing the bejesus out of the treasures of, you know, civilization. civilization and you're using so, inverted commas there. Yeah. Yeah, as so you, what as you does say, this civilization. mean? Yeah. So Katrina is one of my great, great friends. And, um, you know, I, I admire so much what she does mm. and what she has done. So so I'm, I'm really... Uh, interested in the transition of memory through the technology. So mm. the poet goes back to a time when memory was mnemonically driven like rhyme and very strict meter. Exactly what the kids are doing today, which is really the old fashioned poetry. Yeah, this is in the spoken word movement. Yeah, spoken totally, word movement. Yeah. You know, so um, that's one kind of archive in memory. This transition to the book, which is still causing trouble to yeah. this day where the laws get written down and the books are the authority. Now the machine were into, you know, cataclysmic yeah. change. So the children of the machine, where do they get the authority for 
their memory. Yeah. That just interests me. Big, big question. And I suppose you're asking the question. You're not giving us, you're not going to give us an answer. You couldn't. I want you to, to read, um, maybe finish up by reading Diamond Faceted, His Breath. This is from the ceremonial section of the book, which I guess it, in some ways it is precisely that. It's a ceremony. Uh, it's a set, set of ceremonies of remembrance, I, I would yeah, hazard to say. Exactly. Per, uh, you put your finger on it, kind of enshrining um experience in in on, in the way only mm. a poem can can do and this is a blues poem it comes down from the villa, from the villa, from the uh, troubadours the villanelle you know the the two line uh, rep, repetitive blues lines so diamond faceted his breath and my father it's a, it's an elegy for my father and he asked he would ask which is heavier a ton of coal or a ton of feathers my father's death lay on me like a feather. His own hard fought for last mortal breaths was diamond in the radiant sowen weather. Light as the pages that fell from the mirror, toxic dump, bank billions lost, test tube birth. My father's breath could scarce disturb a feather. The going was hard at Dundalk at Utoxeter. Red era, a horse he believed had some worth, given the right ground, the right kind of weather. The half-done crossword, ten across, eight letters, daughter. Nine down, bold, no, wild. Seven down, hearth. The words themselves as light as any feather I could carry every step of my future on the smoother rocky contours of my path, whatever the news, whatever the breaking weather. In the hospice garden, a child's laughter, falling like dry leaves to the hard black earth, was my father's death the weight of a feather as I roved out into the coming winter weather. Wonderful ceremonial and a wonderful memory of your father. And I love the blues feel of it. It has that spoken <laughs> word aspect to it. Paula, thanks so much for coming into us tonight. Great to speak to you as yeah, always. Yeah, and that's Paula and, and uh, Paula's new collection is called The Solace of Artemis. It's published by Daedalus Press. The Crown's reign is coming to an end and Queen Elizabeth, played by Imelda Staunton, is no longer the main draw as the Netflix drama, which has spanned over several decades, reaches recent events that will be fresh in some viewers' minds. This time round, Peter Morgan's creation shows the lead-up and the fallout from Princess Diana's death, including Diana and Dodi Fayed's final moments before their fatal car crash in Paris in 1997. With me in studio is Jen Gannon and joining us down the line is Richard Aldous, who have been watching the first four episodes of this um, season of The Crown. Series six, we're, mm. we're in at this stage of The Crown. Jen, I suppose to you, first of all, the latter years of The Crown focuses really on Charles and Diana and that mm. narrative. Where are we at? Where are we at at this point at the beginning of this new season? Well, I said, you know, the, the latter years could be described as tantrums and tiaras. That's the way it's going. And it, it like we are at a time now post-divorce of Charles and Diana. And now we are moving into when Diana meets mm. 
dodified and that whirlwind relationship of three weeks that ultimately ended in both their deaths in Paris and so it is the royal family hurtling towards modernity it is the internet it's Tony Blair it's all of this that is really looking at their image and you know that Mm. feeling of republicanism that was in the air only growing stronger because of the events after Diana's death. And so we are looking at them in the crisis, the spin kind of crisis. And we're looking at how Charles and Camilla, like we saw that kind of... Camilla Parker-Bowles is a big part of this, uh, the opening section of this season as well. And and we saw like in last season that, you know, that they've hired, you know, the sleek PR man of Mark Bolland, who's played by Industries Ben Lloyd Hughes. And he's forging ahead with creating the image of Diana as this tabloid princess who is is, you know, stirring mm. up sleaze and scandal and trying to say that Charles and Camilla are the sensible, sobering alternative with a keen foreshadowing of the monster of Camilla post-Diana's death. It's, it's right there. So it's all about perception this season. It's yeah. all about, you know, who can have the better angle from the Queen, all, as we see, you know, post-Diana's death, all the way down to the princes. And, you know, it's funny to reflect, like, about how little has changed since those days in 97. Like, they're still squabbling over who can present yeah. themselves best in the in the press and who can win over the public okay. and you know it doesn't end with Diana and neither just the crown <laughs> no, no 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 I know I think last season was supposed to be the last season but suddenly this one now is going to be it's the last season we'll, yeah. see, we'll see if season 7 will yeah, come and yeah. um, Richard Aldous obviously the background as, as an historian is important to us in this particular case Richard but I think if we come looking for the cra- to the crown for historical accuracy, we will be much disappointed, not least of which, and this is all over all the reviews, um, Diana appears as a ghost. I'm presuming yeah, I- you would question the historical accuracy of that. <laughs> Well, I, I suppose, actually, it's the one thing that I can't actually <laughs> confirm or deny, can I? Because that's something that is so about perception. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot uh, about that. Uh, funnily enough, I didn't mind that moment, those mm. couple of moments when it happened. And they're very short because it is a way of of, of being able to externalise something that is internal. So whether it's the Queen, whether it's Charles, um, whether it's Dodi, uh, um, Mohammed Fayyad. Mm. Uh, so there is a, a kind of a sense in which it works. Uh, is it in keeping with the rest of the series? Probably not, because actually one of the things that I think has defined this series, particularly in the early seasons, was that sense of uh, historical accuracy. So it's an it's a departure. It didn't bother me, but I know that it has bothered a lot of people. Yeah. Well, let's put aside the fact that it's a ghost, but we'll, we'll <laughs> listen to a, a, a scene between Elizabeth Debicki as Diana here and Dominic West as Charles having a quick chat while Harry and William head off with their father to Scotland for a few weeks. Let's have a listen to how they're getting on in this clip. Everything all right? They can't wait to be rid of me. Give it a couple of days, they'll be dying to see you again. Have you got exciting plans for the summer? Mm. I heard Bosnia. Mm. The... Landmines charity. Good for you. So proud of you. Thank you. Can I make a, a request? Even though we weren't brilliant at being married, can we um can we be brilliant at all this? I think so. And not just for them, but for us too. She shouldn't get to keep the man of her dreams, but the friend of her dreams. I mean, he's much more than a friend. 
There we go. That's Elizabeth Debicki as Diana and Dominic West as Charles. And that is the final moment, in fact, of their real life mm. encounters. She's not a ghost there. She's a, she's a real no. person. But that is not the narrative that we would be given to believe existed between the now king and the Diana yeah, Princess of Wales. It's a strange one. I would say that, you know, especially with ghost Diana, as I'm calling her later on, um, it's a bizarre choice because I think that flip there and then you have to flip into mm. unadulterated fantasy is a weird step as in they're trying to kind of, I don't know, rehabilitate Charles's image in that way, uh, in, in those in that time yeah. as if to go he is the one that is you know bringing to the Queen the, the, the thoughts about how mm. Diana's death is going to affect the public and her public image and I really don't think now you can't you, you can't know for certain but I don't think anybody could have predicted how Diana's death was going to blow the hinges off the, the British yeah. psyche in that way and I think there is a case that they're kind of they're mellowing on Charles the figure of Charles Yes in, I, in I wondered season. about that Richard and has there been much discussion on this in the United Kingdom around that idea that perhaps now that Charles is king it might be treasonous to be suggesting anything other than that he's um, whatever whistle clean um, how did you feel about that portrayal of him do you think it's is, is it a dramatic license or is it historically possibly correct I, d- I think it is one of the things that has been, uh, t- you know, shown to be true, actually, that in the last few months of her life, they were in a better place, that they were now divorced, that the relationship was, it was never going to be easy, of course, but it was mm. the two boys that had kind of brought them together. So I think, you know, uh, I mean, for for example, Sally Beadle-Smith, the royal biographer, talks about this and how the relationship had improved. O- on the other hand, on that kind of question of Charles, I actually think as well that our attitudes about Charles generally have changed, that in the 1990s, there was still some sense of scandal around the Mm. the question of divorce. There was the referendum in Ireland, for example. So these were still live questions, whereas now we don't think about these things in the same way that even the relationship with Camilla had been the the love of his life. Mm. There's had been an arranged marriage with Diana. So I think we've moved on as well in the the intervening quarter of a century as it is now. What about the portrayal of the Fayed family. I mean, they are very much the villains of the piece here, uh, Richard. Yeah, they are. And, and and I have to say, I did, I worried about that early on in these first four episodes, whether this was going to become that kind of famous trope of the of the foreigner, the outsider, yeah. the kind of Svengali kind of figure manipulating everyone. But I actually thought that Mohammed Fayyad was actually dealt with very sympathetically in the kind of, the in the fourth of the episodes where he's yeah. kind of seen as a much more rounded character. And the oh. ghost character of Dodi actually fulfills that function of making the point that very often, well, you know, uh, that he was looking up too much to the West. I need to let Jen come back to you because before we came to her, she was very strong on this particular point. In the last season, like at the start of the season five, began with the birth of Dodie Fayed and it was depicted with all the sense of disquiet and foreboding of a horror film, which was insane to me. Like the depiction of Mohammed Al-Fayed and his son feels very uneven. They're not afforded the luxury of nuance like the characters of Charles or the Queen or Prince Philip are. And it made really uneasy viewing for me to right. see somebody like Mohammed Al-Fayed as the status as this hungry kind of grabbing control freak and Dodie being this 
you know, idiot, yeah. manipulated playboy son. I just thought, Didn't you know, as if it. England hadn't had a glorious history of plundering themselves. <laughs> we forget about it. <laughs> Will you watch it to the end, however, Jen? I think it's a very, you know, it's a damp squib to be ending on Wills and Kate. And I, I really feel like post-Diana, it's losing something. It's losing that driving force of interest. You know, these recent yeah. events, they don't have that momentous sense of occasion that the, even the recent past exactly. do in that and, way. And briefly, Richard, would you watch to the end? I know you're enjoying it. Yeah, I, re- I really disagree with Jen on these things, but I really found this quite moving. I enjoyed this, and yeah, I will definitely be watching it to the end. I think Peter Morgan, just the dialogue is just so clever. Really brilliant All stuff. All right, that's Jen Gannon and Richard Aldous. The first four episodes of The Crown Series 6 are available on Netflix now. The remaining six episodes will be released on the 14th of December. That's your Christmas viewing sorted if you're so inclined, I guess. And that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Paula Shields, Leah Murphy and Niall Fitzmaurice with the researchers. But Ali Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Buckless was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on Radio 1, uh, RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.